0: Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 237. My name is Terry Frost and yes, I've been away for a month. But let's move on from that. The two movies I'm going to do this time around are very different for a lot of different reasons. They were both made in the same decade, but that's pretty much all they have in common. The first one is a biblical epic and I'm not that keen on biblical epics as a rule but this one has some cool and crazy shit which really does work and it is The Silver Chalice starring Paul Newman and Jack Palance from 1954. Then I'm going to go on a very unusual journey with a film noir I haven't seen before. A 1952 movie directed by Russell Rouse starring Ray Milland. And it's called The Thief. And the unusual thing about this is it's an American film noir with absolutely no spoken dialogue. Not one tiny bit. So sit back. I'll get the contact details out of the way. And we'll go from Jesus to Ray Moland. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of movie appreciation. There's only one rule, and that is the movies have to be more than 20 years old. And I have to like them. I'm going to be looking at the history of the films, the social context in which the films were made, and relate that to the way movies are now. Feedback is very important, so you can leave reviews on iTunes. You can also go to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com and drop an email or a voicemail by MP3. Or you can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. Now, please be aware that this podcast may contain adult language. So, if you don't want to have to explain it to your kids, don't listen to it when the kids are around, unless you have incredibly hip children. Okay, so how is everybody? Um, we're doing okay here. We, get, we actually went for a drive during the week, did uh, three hours or so out to a place called Mount Arapiles, which is a mountain sticking out of a dead flat plane where they harvest um, wheat uh, it's about 1275 feet for people who are metrically challenged or about 300 odd meters up and uh, we drove to the top of the mountain climbed around for a little bit and got some fantastic views i do not know at all why a movie has never been made around there because it's a perfect action film kind of location it's got beautiful craggy rocks it's um scenic as fuck And even in the winter, it's beautiful. You can take a look on my Instagram. If you go to Guru on Instagram, you'll see some of the pictures I put up. But yeah, really loved it. Uh, There's a town near it called Nattermuck, which we'd heard cool things about. It's a kind of alternative hippie town. It was shut. We went there on a Friday and it was shut. So we had to go to the nearest big town, which was Horsham, to get some food. And then we drove back again. So we had um, all up about 600 kilometre drive that I did all the driving for. And had a great day with it. But Mount Arapolis, if there's any Australian filmmakers who happen to be stupid enough to listen to this podcast, you should make a movie around Mount Arapolis. It's very, very cool. Apart from that, I've been doing a lot of live stuff. I mentioned a lot of this on Martian Driving Park podcast. you can fast forward a little bit if you've heard this before. Uh, I did go up to Sydney to house sit for my sister and brother-in-law and nephew while they were in uh, Hawaii because somebody has to be close by with my mother in the nursing home, and also my brother-in-law Gav's mother is not well. So um, we kind of hung around and and flat sat for a week. And in spite of the fact we had to visit mum, which is always very, very troubling, uh, we did have a good time, popped around, saw a whole bunch of different stuff, spent a bit more money than we should have, which is always what happens when you go traveling. And then spent a couple of days with the family when they came back from Hawaii. Before that, we had Continuum. The local science fiction convention was the weekend before that. And we were away for that, so I didn't record then. Uh, That was pretty good. I did two panels, one of which was about making Australian superheroes. And we kind of thought some up off the spot you know off the top of our heads and spur of the moment and had a bit of fun with that and the other panel was on at night time we had a really great audience were so very responsive Rob Hood and I and a bunch of other people were on the panel and we talked about the Universal Movie Monsters so we had a lot of fun with that I've done my homework which is always a great relief in this kind of thing you can uh, extemporize a panel making up superheroes but when you're doing Universal Movie Monsters you really need to have your stuff down And we did. Uh, We got some really great responses from the audience and had a fantastic time with it. And it went a lot better than I expected because I'm never optimistic about this. Sometimes you never can tell who's going to show up at a panel as far as audiences are concerned. Nonetheless, it was a lot of fun. Uh, We really grooved on it, played off each other and just had a fantastic time doing that. To be honest with you, we wandered off course and talked about our favourite in-cinema film experiences where weird shit happened. But I love drifting off uh, topic, both in podcasts, as you well know, and when I'm doing panels as well, because you can take it some interesting places, and then you swing it back around or somebody gets a bit anal about it and swings the panel back to the original topic, uh, which is fine. Uh, now and then I'll drift off and follow the winds where they go. But uh, yeah, I really love doing that kind of thing, and I'm going to be doing more of it in future. Uh, I've already paid for my membership to continue on next year which is the national science fiction convention and we're going to have a lot of fun so now it's time for this what, what have i, have I been, watching? been watching glad you asked okay let me just get the letterbox happening here there have been a few things i've been watching which is always a good thing uh did see jurassic well fallen kingdom which was a big dumb movie and we had a bit of fun with that and kind of grooved to that particular rhythm yeah, the science is pretty ropey. If you get swallowed up by a pyroclastic flow from a volcanic eruption, basically you're going to end up like a baked chicken and the bloody thing's are 900 degrees. But apparently Chris Pratt and the movie makers didn't care about that when they were making the film. But yeah, it's all there. It's got dinosaurs. It's got bad people. It's got good people. It's got some character actors. It's got some good character actors like Ted Levine and Toby Jones and... James Cromwell and and other people like that. So, yeah, that's worth seeing on the big screen because dinosaurs, volcanoes, what's not to like? Uh, What else have I watched? Uh, I watched a movie called Craze, which is an English film from the 1970s starring Jack Palance. I had a bit of a Jack Palance thing happening between that and The Silver Chalice, which he's in. Um, Yeah, this one's about a kind of weird, bisexual, antique dealer played by Jack Palance in a very miscast role who comes under the influence of an African idol which tells him to make sacrifices to it and he does and everything goes really shitty um it's not particularly a good film it's really weird because it's got tons and tons of cameos by very famous actors Trevor Howard's in it Dame Edith Evans is in it there are a whole bunch of different actors who came in for a day did a little bit for the film and then popped off again so it's good fun to watch for that but on the whole, it's very much of its time and of its type. I did see a good action film from last year, by the way, if you um, are interested, and you're listening, I suppose you are. Ah, uh, The Foreigner, starring Jackie Chan and Pierce Brosnan. It's about a an Asian guy uh, played by Jackie Chan who may be Vietnamese. His origins are, are a little bit cloudy. Whose daughter is killed in a terrorist attack by the IRA in London and he decides he wants to find out who did it and um, bring them to justice. Pierce Brosnan plays a cabinet minister in the um, Irish Parliament who's got some very shady background dealings and he's a former IRA member. And uh, it's got a, a nice combination of really cool action sequences. It's directed by Martin Campbell, who directed a number of Pierce Brosnan's James Bond films it kind of combines the action sequences really well with a lot of the spy intrigue stuff and that really works it's a, a bit of an underrated movie in that genre of late uh Brosnan's very good in it Jackie Chan is also very very good in it it's got a very complex political background and the action sequences are totally on point so I really enjoyed that Uh, I did watch a movie from the 1960s which is very bad, it's a kaiju movie, King Kong Escapes, which has got um, Mecha Kong in it, and uh, is basically a guy in a King Kong costume, some really cool but really unrealistic special effects with the miniatures, and it's a lot of fun, Uh, it takes me back to watching this kind of shit in the 1960s. And uh, Kong is there. There's an evil guy whose name is Doctor Who, oddly enough, who wants to get a rare element from underground, which requires either a giant mechanical gorilla or King Kong to get it out. Uh, it's got Mihama in it, who was the love interest in You Only Live Twice with Sean Connery and a bunch of other people. And it came out very cheaply here in Australia on Blu-ray. So I picked that up. Yeah, it's a little bit of fun and and not too taxing on the mind, if you (laughs) know what I mean. Uh, I did go and see Ant-Man and the Wasp, which was... It's kind of low-key for an MCU Marvel movie, but it's definitely a nice palate cleanser from the cosmic drama of Avengers Infinity War um it's got the usual suspects in there you um have Paul Rudd of course Evangeline Lilly Michael Douglas Michelle Pfeiffer Michael Pena comes back as Louise for the comic relief aspect of it and it kind of works it's got a more complex villain in this case which is always nice and the main villain oddly enough ...is the American penal system. Uh, They kind of ban superheroes under the Sokovian Accords, not allowed to use forbidden technologies like the Pym tech that Ant-Man uses. You're not allowed to manifest superpowers without um, the government's authority, even though it's saved the world at least twice since the Sokovian Accords were signed. Um, it, It kind of goes to show that the law is an ass, and there's a little bit of that in there. It's very lightweight. There are two post credit sequences, by the way. Second one's totally irrelevant. First one, yeah, you kind of need to see, but the second one is dumb and superfluous. So we saw that, of course, making the mistake of seeing it with the school holiday crowd, which is always a pain in the ass and not to be recommended. Uh, then I watched a few movies on disc. Uh, Watch Dr. Cyclops, a 1939 American horror movie starring Albert Decker. And it holds up well. I love the saturated uh, technicolor in this one. I like the fact that Dr. Thorkell is a total fucking moron in some cases and a total megalomaniac in others. And the kind of forced perspective and other tricks they use to have the miniaturized humans in it still kind of hold up well. You know it's not real, but they use a couple of nice tricks to give a reasonable impression of a kind of shrunken down heroes fighting a full-sized mad scientist. And it does work. It still holds up lovely. And it gets extra props for the fact that they have a female scientist in there who isn't just there to scream, which is kind of cool. Really approved of that. Now, uh, there's another movie from a couple of years ago, which has also uh, an interesting female protagonist. It's a kind of low-key horror movie called Happy Death Day, which is a kind of combination between a slasher pick and Groundhog Day. And it has a protagonist called Tree who spends her whole birthday in college. She's not necessarily a good person. She um, is dismissive to the people that she should like as friends. Um, She's a little bit promiscuous which i'm never going to complain about in anybody your sexuality is your own business and how you manifest it go for it as long as you're not hurting people and at the end of each day a masked killer stabs her or kills her in some way and she bounces back to the next morning for another chance to find out who it is and to stop them from killing her so she can move on to the next day uh, the only problem is a beautiful complication in this where she gets hospitalized at one stage on one of the iterations of the day and they find she's got a whole bunch of physical injuries in her body that she should be dead for, but she isn't. So each iteration, she's getting weaker and more and more wounded by the previous deaths. And so that gives her a kind of natural limitation on how many times she can bounce back and forth through time before she's not going to be able to do it she'll ultimately die regardless which is kind of nice it ups the ante on it Uh, it's not particularly a big budget they are doing a sequel Happy Death Day 2 which kind of tells the story of how she bounces through time yeah it kind of worked it's um, not groundbreaking in any way in the horror genre but it's a good honest effort and I enjoyed it at that level I saw a really bad, low-budget Nick Cage movie from uh, last year called The Humanity Bureau. You don't need to see it. That's all I'm going to say. And I saw a couple of uh, documentaries, too. First one is a doco on Netflix called The Last Laugh, which is about whether you can make jokes about the Holocaust, and they talk to a number of Holocaust survivors and Jewish comedians, including people like Mel Brooks, Sarah Silverman, uh, Gilbert Gottfried, and a bunch of others, and just kind of talk around the subject within that context of taboo subjects for, for comedy. And they get a whole bunch of different opinions on it. And all of the opinions are valid. No, there's no waiting towards, yes, you can make jokes about the Holocaust about that. But they kind of go into the mechanics of how and under what circumstances you can make jokes about subjects that are very up in people's faces for some people and for other people are are a a freedom of speech issue and that's kind of interesting I like the way they handled it it does give a lot of different viewpoints and it has a complexity to it that I admired not an easy watch at times because there are um, Holocaust survivors talking about their experiences and I know for at least some of my friends that's an incredibly triggering thing but it is a good effort to talk about the fact that you can have differing opinions on things and still be civil about them. And there's a couple of really interesting scenes with Holocaust survivors riding gondolas through that um, Venetian part of Las Vegas. And two of them are talking about, one of them uh, is a survivor who has retained her sense of humour and talks about that. She's a professional um, speaker about surviving the Holocaust and things like that. And she is in the boat with another woman who lost more, as far as her sense of humor is concerned, by her experiences in the camps. And they're kind of talking to each other and supporting each other while having very different viewpoints on the world based on their experiences. It's a beautiful moment and a very complex moment. And the documentary is quite nuanced and much more than I expected it to be. The other thing you should watch is uh, Hannah Gatsby's*. Uh, Netflix comedy special, Nanette. I'm not going to do any spoilers on it, but you should really see it. It's a tour de force. It's probably one of the best comedy um, Netflix specials ever made. Uh, Hannah Gatsby is an Australian comedian. Uh, She's a lesbian, and she talks intelligently about art history, about comedy, about the nature of comedy, the mechanics of comedy, and about her own life experiences. If you haven't seen it, definitely check that one out. So anyway, I'm going to take a break. Now my throat, for some reason, is getting a bit scratchy, so I'm going to go and get some cough lollies and I'll be back to talk about the biblical epic done by Warner Brothers in 1954, The Silver Chalice, starring Paul Newman, Pier Angeli, and Jack Palance. Do you like great music? Do you like
1: in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer... The history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So, if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to... Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from Love That Album
0: dot blogspot.com Okay, so the Silver Chalice nineteen fifty four American historical epic film it says here, though there is some stuff there that's a little bit ropey. Uh based on the uh, Thomas B. Costain novel of the same name. It was Victor Saville's second last movie made. He made another one under a pseudonym in the 1960s, but he was um, a, a director gone on from the silent film era all the way through to the 1960s as a director. Never really great at what he did. He was an English guy, but never a top draw kind of uh, director. And he was given the Silver Chalice, by Warner Brothers in 1954. The plot's fairly simple. A Greek artisan from Antioch, and I'm reading from Wikipedia, is commissioned to cast the cup of Christ in silver and sculpt around his room the faces of the disciples and Jesus himself. He travels to Jerusalem and eventually to Rome to complete the task. Meanwhile, a nefarious interloper is trying to convince the crowds that he is a new messiah by using nothing more than cheap parlour tricks. Uh, the cast in uh, Paul Newman gets fourth billing in this one because it's an introducing Paul Newman as Basil, the Greek silversmith artisan. Uh, the cast is pretty damn good. Virginia Mayo plays Helena, a slave who becomes the she's a lover slash slave of Simon, the magician played by Jack Palance. Uh, it's, as a young girl, uh, Helena is actually played by Natalie Wood which is kind of interesting because you think, oh, it's a Natalie Wood movie, and then she disappears and is replaced by Virginia Mayer, who was five years older than Paul Newman at the time. So in order to make it interesting, what they did was Helena, as a girl, is older than Basil as a boy. So they kind of kept that age appropriate. Um, we have Pier Angeli as Deborah, the Jewish girl. It's always going to be a Jewish girl that ultimately the hero marries in these things. So you've got a Jewish girl with an Italian accent, Uh, The supporting cast is really interesting. You've got Lorne Green playing the disciple Peter, a guy called Alexander Scorby who actually did a whole bunch of narrations of the the whole Bible, and he had a great resonant voice. He played the the bad guy in Fritz Lang's The Big Heat uh, the year before this, and if you just listen to his voice in this movie, Really fucking fantastic voice. He really did have a wonderful resonant, toned voice. We have Joseph Wiseman playing one of the assassins who hooks up politically with Jack Palance as uh, some of the magician. Joseph Wiseman, of course, we know played Doctor No. Uh, let's have a look here. Herbert Herbert Rutley, a character actor whose face, if nothing else, is familiar, playing Linus, who's a wealthy citizen of Rome. We get E.G. Marshall turning up as the guy who actually adopts young Basil and makes him uh, a part of his family. E.G. Marshall, great character actor. Uh, He was in, amongst other things, 12 Angry Men, of of which I spoke fairly recently on the podcast. We get Australian actor Michael Pate showing up as Aaron Ben-Joseph. He only gets a couple of scenes, but it's always nice to get an Australian in there. It makes me feel reassured. And we get Albert Decker from uh, Dr. Cyclops turning up as Kester. He's almost unrecognisable because he's got a big wig and a big beard. And um, there aren't any close-ups of him. There there aren't a hell of a lot of close-ups in this film, to be honest with you. Apart from on wonderful people like uh, Jack Palance. But, uh, yeah, so the supporting cast is really interesting. But the star of this show, it isn't Jesus, it isn't God, it isn't any of that shit. It's actually the production design and the set design, which is ultimately wonderful. It's I can't take my eyes off it when I watch it. It was by a guy who predominantly did theatre um, design, a guy called Rolf Gerard, And he's done all of this movie, even the large-scale sets in this movie and all of the matte paintings and things, are done semi-abstract. So none of it looks realistic. There are lots of geometric patterns in the sets of this movie. It's almost sketched in in a way that gives it a very theatrical look of, of an enormous budgeted theatrical production, and I like that. It kind of makes it much more interesting than it would be otherwise. The other thing that they do, which is kind of interesting in this film, is they kind of underplay the God stuff. There's actually nothing supernatural that appears in this movie. Usually with biblical epics, you get a lot of supernatural stuff and miracles happening and, and things like that. But in this case, you don't get that. And I kind of like that too, taking away the supernatural um, magical stuff, and of, of course, Jesus's miracles are referenced in the movie, but they're kind of off-screen. There's something that people remember because the whole movie takes place after Jesus has jumped, you know, jumped on the rainbow. Um, uh, it's really underplayed in an interesting way. A lot of biblical epics are as sanctimonious as fuck. And that kind of puts me as a non-believer off. I really can't stand the piety that's expressed in sickly sweet terms by, say, uh, Cecil B. DeMille biblical epic or one of the other ones that were done in the 1950s. Now, this one didn't have a particularly enormous budget for a biblical epic. It was about four and a half million which doesn't sound like a lot and in those days was a fairly reasonable budget and there are a lot of crowd scenes that really work in this one which I like but that kind of semi-abstract set design is fantastic. Go and find the trailer on YouTube and you'll see what I mean by that and see that's a segue because now I'm going to play you the trailer for The Silver Chalice.
2: (music) You stand in the streets of ancient Antioch, where Caesar's legions proclaimed his pagan power and the lash enforced his law. Ride the trade routes to the holy city, then as now, torn by strife and doubt, where Joseph and Luke guarded the grail. Then across the sea to the grandeur that was Rome, where imperial Nero, corrupt and sensuous, whiled away the glory of an empire. And you'll know the intrigues and the jealousies, the infatuations and the fiery loves, the mortal conflicts and the immortal moments of the people whose lives were strangely woven into the destiny of the cup. Deborah, who found her soul and her faith, but lost her heart to a pagan. Simon, the magician, who tried to fight an ideal with an idea. Helena, the slave who ruled the man who nearly ruled the world. Basil, the pagan, whose gifted hands shape the silver
1: chalice. But all the symbols and relics of his supremacy must be crushed out of existence. I am told one such exists, a wine cup which he used. I charge you to find it and bring it to me and together we will crush it. Now let me see those knives. Alan, I love you. You must leave Simon and come to Rome with me.
3: I love you as I've never loved any other man.
1: It would have been very easy, Deborah, when we were in the desert to yield to the temptation to be your husband.
3: I confess I was trying to take advantage of my last tower alone with you.
2: This woman of his secretly conspired with Peter to destroy him.
3: Peter, it is not true.
2: Take this woman to the top of the tower and throw it off.
0: Okay, so that'll give you the gist of it. Uh, The two things I love about the movie. First thing is that production design, which is pretty much in tones of grey, black and white, which sets off the costumes of the people in the movie quite nicely. And also um, Jack Palance's performance as Simon the Magician. I remember seeing this movie when I was a kid. I was a very young child. It would have been on a black and white TV with not an enormous screen and i loved a couple of things in there i loved his death scene which is fantastic but also he did a whole bunch of magic tricks some of the magic is done in camera using um some props of which magicians and people who are into magic will be very familiar there's uh decapitating the lady kind of thing pouring wine from one glass to the other and the glasses are progressively smaller and uh all of those kind of little bits and pieces are part of this so you've got a little bit of um stage magic going on there and simon played by um jack palance who is over the top fucking crazy uh we forget how good an actor this guy was if you have a look at the big knife and in this one as well this one he just chooses scenery he really is going way over the top but It lifts the film. It gives it an energy that that wouldn't have had otherwise. And so it's perfectly justified. Uh, Paul Newman as Basil is pretty dull. In fact, there's that story which is not apocryphal, that when this was going to be shown on TV in the 1960s in the US, Paul Newman took out a full-page ad in the paper, apologising for it and calling it one of the worst movies of the 1950s. I don't think it is. I think there are worse movies in the 1950s, and I'm not going to name them but there are a lot of them. This one is visually interesting. It's in cinemascope, so it's got that beautiful widescreen cinematography. And that um, production design just kind of lifts it. There are some really weird scenes in this film as well. There's a scene where there's a kind of feast for Nero played by Jacques, uh, Jacques Aubuchon where they go through the entire menu of the meal, including door mice and larks, tongues, and all that kind of thing. And these enormous platters are presented to Nero. There's the usual scene that you get in Biblical Ethics. Epics? Did I say Ethics? Epics. Where you get um, a dance sequence by professional dancers in skimpy costumes writhing around. They're there, in almost inevitably scantily clad women, but there are some that have some scantily clad men as well. You get a little bit of that going on there as well. Uh the Franz Waxman score is pretty much par for the course for a biblical epic. But there just that kind of slow, steady progression of character actors coming in and doing a few scenes and then popping out again. Uh, is a lot of fun. Don't get too many female character actors, unfortunately. In there because this is a little bit of a sausage fest, apart from um, Helena, played by Virginia Mayo, and Pierre Angelis, Deborah. Apart from them, there aren't really any women that get a lot of prominence in this um, sausage party of a movie. But the film has, yeah, I think it is a little bit long, and but it has a weirdness about it which is kind of hypnotic. It mesmerizes me when I see it because. Uh, You've got the focus of the film ultimately not being on the people who are going around and Basil's going around to meet the surviving disciples so he can sculpt their likenesses onto the chalice. Um, That stuff kind of drags the movie down compared to the outrageous over-the-top scenes with Simon the Magician and Helena and uh, even Jacques Aubuchon's Nero. Those kind of scenes lift the film up. So, in essence, the film's less about Christianity and more about the politics of the Roman Empire at the time. And that, and also stage magic. I don't think there were too... It has a feel, and this is just an impression that I get. It has a feel there weren't too many people involved that were devoutly Christian. They knew they had to do a epic. They had this novel as a property. And so they made the film, but what they decided to do instead was make it visually interesting, make it somewhat campy and outrageous. Uh, there's a costume that uh, Jack Palance wears and in the final scene that he's in the film, which is basically a leotard with what looks like black cartoon sperm cells all over it and a big cape. Uh, so there's this outrageousness about this film kind of hidden under the surface which if you watched it when you had a couple of drinks or maybe even a little bit of a chuff, you could appreciate a lot more than you would just casually viewing it. It really is a mad piece of film. And uh, ultimately, the good guys, And Deborah and Basil, who are married for political convenience more than anything else, and social convenience, decide they love each other and they're devoted to each other and all that kind of thing. And the chalice gets finished because Basil can't picture the face of Jesus until he has a conversion to Christianity and he sees it. We don't actually see the face of Jesus on the chalice because the sculpture he does of the face of Jesus is turned away from the camera. But he has that kind of, you can see from the three quarters turned away, but you can see of the of the bust, that he's got that kind of bony face, long face, Max von Sydow Jesus look. Uh, yeah, so this movie is a very, very odd biblical epic, it's got the focus and the most interesting characters aren't the good guys again, you get that with things like Ben-Hur as well where Masala was much more interesting than Judah in Ben-Hur and if it wasn't for the chariot race, which I always maintain Masala should have won because he's a much interesting much more interesting character Um, the, the emphasis is on the bad guys, and I kind of like that I, I think that it's more fun for me to watch Simon the Magician doing conjuring tricks than it is to watch Paul Newman try to convey the emotions of somebody that's going on, undergoing a conversion to Christianity. Uh, this movie, you've got to see it. If you haven't seen it, you've got to see it. If you haven't seen it since you were a kid like me, you've got to see it again and watch for that production design. Watch for the character actor bits and... The, there are some pretty bad wigs in there as well. Some some of the hair pieces the guys wear to give them a non-1950s American kind of hairstyle are pretty fucking ropey. But yeah, I, I like it for that reason. I may not watch it for a number of years because biblical epics really aren't my jam. Nonetheless, it's, it's worth checking out because it does things with the genre of the biblical epic that other movies don't do. And it's worth just wading through the movie to see that death scene for Simon the Magician, which is kind of cool and dumb in equal measure. So I'm going to take another break now. As you might hear, my throat is getting a bit funny. And when I get back, I'm going to talk much more than the movie itself does about the 1952 film noir The Thief, starring Ray Milland, Rita Gamm, and Martin Gable. <laughs>
4: e pensiamo in fondo a cosa siamo quando improvvisamente ritroviamo tutti quei momenti che dobbiamo ricordare per poterci amare noi comprenderemo cosa vuole dire veramente starsene per ore nel silenzio stretti da morire ci accorgeremo allora che il passato il passato è stato quel che è stato ma il domani cosa mai
0: Was Florinda Balkan with a song with the music is by Ennio Morricone and the song is called Metti una sera a cena. I don't know what that means, but I like it and it's kind of cool and has nothing at all to do with the movie I'm about to talk about. I knew nothing about The Thief until recently, which is a bit remiss of me. I really should have paid more attention. Uh, It was directed by Russell Rouse, who directed about a decade after this, actually, a decade and a half after this. One of the great bad movies of the 1960s. The one with the script, oddly enough, by Harlan Ellison. The Oscar, he directed that one. Uh, His writing partner and he, uh, Clarence Green and Russell Rouse, had just written one of the great films noir. And that was DOA with Edmund O'Brien. By the way, The Thief is in its entirety on YouTube. Um, I've posted a link to it on the Paleo Cinema Cafe Facebook page and on the Patreon page as well at uh, patreon.com slash paleocinema Uh, The really nice thing about it is it's actually a Greek um, YouTube page which has posted the movie and it doesn't matter because there's no spoken dialogue in the movie. You don't need subtitles and because there is no spoken dialogue in the movie anybody from anywhere can watch it and enjoy it without the problems of subtitles or dubbing which is kind of cool and I hadn't thought about that when I was watching the movie. As much as it is a film noir it's also a spy movie with a lot of spy tradecraft in it. We get some very slick moves in here. We get uh, dead drops, brush passes, a car toss, all of these kind of things. Uh, I'll explain what they are. I probably should play fair with you. A dead drop is where you leave something at a mutually agreed site for your handler or the guy running you as a spy, to pick up. So you get that in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., which is kind of cool. Brush passes are where people kind of pass things from hand to hand as they're walking past each other in opposite directions. A car toss is where you kind of drop something into a moving car as it slows down and goes past you, and the person drives away with it. So there's a lot of this kind of stuff in this film, which is kind of interesting. Because at this stage of cinema, you didn't see a lot of that cool shit in movies. But in this one, you did. Now, the plot is fairly basic. The movie runs a really tight 86 minutes. Ray Millan plays Dr. Alan Fields, again, Wikipedia. A nuclear physicist who works for the Atomic Energy Commission in Washington, D.C. He's also a spy working for an unnamed foreign power. His job, basically, with the uh, foreign power, is to photograph with a little Minox camera any documents that might be useful to them and arrange for the film to be picked up by his handler, a character called Mr. Bleak, played by Martin Gable, who's not a pretty looking man. He's kind of squat and he wears thick glasses and doesn't dress very well and has a kind of resting bitch face. We learn a lot about Alan Fields just from what he does in the movie. And you've kind of got to pay attention for the first 20 minutes of the film. It starts picking up after that. But because there's no dialogue, we have to kind of view this film in a somewhat different way. There's a cognitive thing that goes on there where you're expecting to be spoon-fed information verbally or at least audibly. And you're not. It's all visual. There are, of course, sounds happening but you don't get any dialogue to kind of help you along. You've got to pay close attention to this movie because for the most part, the visual stuff is all you're going to get. You can't watch this movie while checking your phone for messages and that kind of thing because you'll miss something. This is the first American mainstream movie since Chaplin City Lights do not have dialogue in it. Uh, so you get... Uh, Alan Fields, doing his work in the Atomic Energy Commission and passing on this information to his handler. His handler has a little thing where they meet, as agreed, on a street corner after his uh, Alan Fields' phone rings three times, hang up three times again. Then his handler crumples up a, a cigarette packet, drops it on the ground, and Alan Field picks it up, and inside the cigarette packet is a message, information he needs. Then they do a dead drop at the index file card um, cabinets of the Library of Congress. And it's all filmed on location, which is really kind of interesting as well, where he drops off the film. And then we see from that point the film going from hand to hand among the Soviet agents until ultimately one of them gets on a plane going to Cairo with the microfilm. All done, as I said, with our dialogue. Now, we've learned some things obliquely about Alan Field. First off, he lives alone. He doesn't have a family. He doesn't have a wife and kids. My theory, and this is purely my theory, based on what happens later in the film, is that he's actually a closeted gay man being blackmailed by the foreign power because he doesn't have a relationship. He doesn't have a wife or kids or a girlfriend, which is very unusual for any kind of film in America at the time. And as things get to a crunch, there's a scene which kind of implies some stuff. So he's going along doing this. He, he's nervous about it. He worries about it. He drinks and he has insomnia. We learn that because at the start of the film, when his morning alarm goes off, he's laying in bed fully clothed, looking up at the ceiling. So again, lots of nonverbal information being given to us about this man then something goes wrong as he's delivered another lot of microfilm it's passed on to mr bleak and then taken to new york city via various um intermediaries one of whom is hit by a car and killed and so the police find this microfilm on him so lo- not really microfilm like mini film camera the police find that on him it's in his hand uh, it's in his hand at the time And the FBI get involved. They know where the stuff's coming from. It's coming from the Atomic Energy Commission in Washington. And there are only a certain number of people who had access to that particular information. We do see some stuff with the FBI agents. The main FBI agent we deal with is a guy called Harris, played by Harry Bronson. And we see the FBI people planning some things. We then see... The FBI agents watching uh, the suspects leave the Atomic Energy Commission, and as each suspect leaves, some of them are women, some of them are older guys, A an FBI agent follows them, so they have a tail, as indeed ultimately does Alan Fields. So comes the time for the next dead drop, which is a very dodgy... Getting the information is becoming very dodgy for Fields, but he's got another lot of information to pass on to his handler. Um... The handler sees the tale in the Library of Congress and doesn't make the rendezvous. He then um, contacts Fields by telegram, and apparently, telegrams are a lot spying was so much easier before surveillance techniques and, and phones and all that and mobile phones and all that kind of stuff. So, he gives me a telegram telling him what to do. The plan is that they're going to extract Fields from the United States and help him relocate to another country we assume it's the Soviet Union so Fields first has to try to lose his tail and then make his way from Washington DC to New York City which indeed he does and he's put up in a safe house which is really just a flop house somewhere near 42nd Street because we see a lot of scenes of Ray Moland walking along 42nd Street and there are all these beautiful 1950s neon signs there, it's Again, location shooting often is a documentary for us on how places looked at a particular time in history. So Fields is in this flop house and he's left there to stew for a while while they plan his escape. And his paranoia and his kind of nerves get worse during this time. He does have a neighbour in the building, an attractive woman who, through implication we guess, is a prostitute, played by an actress called Rita Gam who started out as a model and then went on to become uh, an actress. She's a strikingly beautiful woman, like really strikingly, fantastically beautiful woman. At the time, she was married to the director Sydney Lamette, until around the time this movie was made, in fact, uh, a couple of years after this film. And, yeah, really, uh, you yeah, know, like wow kind of woman with sexy legs. And she kind of does a come on to Fields. Obviously, trying to um, drum up some business for her sex work, and he at first seems tempted, but kind of decides not to take up the offer. And he's kind of there's an ambiguity there, which kind of implies at an alternative sexuality for the character, which makes sense. You can't really, in a 1952 American movie, say somebody is gay in any meaningful way particularly in a movie which doesn't have any dialogue but there's a strong suggestion that he is and he's worried that because he rejects the offer she may go to the cops about him or something like that so you got to remember that homosexuality was illegal in western societies at the time and particularly for people who had access to secret information or were in any way hooked up to security services they were seen as a um blackmail risk, which indeed this movie kind of shows that Alan Field was. So from this point in the film, we get an escalation. We see him in various locations around New York City, Grand Central Station 42nd Street. Uh, We see him also in Central Park at places I've actually been. And then he gets a message telling him to meet his contact, a woman who'll be carrying three books tied up with string. At the 86th floor lookout on the top well near the top of the Empire State Building and Field does go there but he's picked up his tail again. He's been seen and his tail, again played by Harry Bronson, is following him and follows him to the 86th floor observation deck of of the Empire State Building and then he notices that the woman only has two of the three books and chases to the 102nd floor observation deck of the Empire State Building, which is now not functional, and up into the tower where they have an altercation. And that's that escalation from one guy in a room looking at the ceiling to him on the top of the world in, in essence and still on having fallen so far from where he was in other ways is really interesting, that kind of juxtaposition with being way high above everybody else, and yet being trapped makes for a really tense and interesting movie. It really does pay off if you just follow it. Uh, there's, as I said at the start, getting your head around watching a film in a different way is a really difficult thing. It's no small task to do that. But ultimately, it's an experimental film in that sense. But I think it kind of works well. I really like Ray Land's acting in this one, Uh, he's in most of the scenes, there's only a few scenes he's not in and he does do a lot with the physicality, of course he won an Oscar for Best Actor in 1945 for The Lost Weekend and so we knew he had acting chops and in this one he really kind of uses them in a way that we haven't seen before he's a very underestimated actor Um, I liked him in things like Golden Earrings course panicking year zero and um, x the man with x-ray eyes even in lesser works like frogs in 1972 i always liked ray Milan. apparently he was a prickly and difficult guy in real life but for him to be able to carry a movie like this with no dialogue and very often in claustrophobic confines he really does do a tremendously adept job at holding our attention very rarely is he on screen with another actor. We, I kind of just realised that there are a couple of scenes where he's with other people kind of doing everyday things, but there's, he's an isolated and alienated character. We don't see him with anybody else, which, of course, would almost demand some form of dialogue. But he's an isolated figure through moving through Washington, D.C., and then ultimately New York City. And that isolation is kind of at the core of a certain kind of film noir. That inevitability of fate and making the wrong decisions and paying for a crime is really shown to us in a very different format by this film. It's well worth seeing and it's well worth enjoying. And yeah, stick with it while your head reprograms itself to watch a movie that doesn't have dialogue and is not subtitled or having um, interstitial cards or anything like that, the way silent films often did, this really kind of works. I I think it's a stunt in some ways, and, and you'd be silly not to acknowledge that. Nevertheless, it's worth checking out, and it's quite memorable, and I really enjoyed it. I was surprised that I hadn't seen it before, and I'm surprised at how much I enjoyed it. And as I said, it's all on YouTube so you can enjoy it for yourself. There's no um, kind of subtitles imposed over it because there's no dialogue. Wonderful stuff. It's almost made for pirating. How can I forget, Uh, two years after he made The Thief, Raymond made Dial M for Murder with Grace Kelly for Alfred Hitchcock. So I think maybe Hitchcock saw The Thief and knew that he had the right guy for... This particular role, uh, yeah, it's um, it's part of that weird arc that the cinema career of Ray had, where he went from the highs of *The Lost Weekend* to the lows of doing a guest spot on *Battlestar Galactica*, the old one. Um, nonetheless, I'm happy about this one. It's kind of made me very pleased. I may well watch it again soon because I'm sure there are little bits and pieces I missed. But it's a good Cold War spy drama. And because of the limited budget and the beautiful black and white cinematography and the themes and plot of it, it's definitely also film noir. That's what I've got to tell you too. There's a film noir group I'm on Facebook with and it's pissing me off enormously. The reason it's pissing me off enormously is you get a whole bunch of people joining the group and then asking the whole group whether a certain movie is film noir. And it's fucking annoying because the group, which I probably will leave, is all about that. Though it did steer me in the direction of The Thief. But I'm going to kind of have to try to ignore all these people going, well, is Chinatown film noir or not? And is this movie? And I think that A man called Flintstone should be film noir as well. You know, that kind of bullshit. We get a lot of that. But anyway, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you for listening. I can't forget our good friend David Kummer, our most recent subscriber under Patreon, donating a few bits of pocket change to help keep the podcast going. Thank you for listening. Thank you for putting up with the hiatus. I really regret it. But occasionally real life does interfere with podcasting, much as I hate the fact that it does. And I'd like to, of course, thank all of the wonderful Patreon subscribers and other people amongst them who have uh, helped finance me buying the movies for the the podcast. Plus the ongoing costs of all of the file hosting, which is up on the Podbean site. So anyway, uh, we'll be back next week with a Martian Driving Podcast and two weeks with another Paleo Cinema Podcast, so I'm back on schedule. Uh, it was kind of slow start getting back into the podcasting after a month's hiatus, but I finally got there and it's done. Take care of yourselves, watch good movies, watch bad movies. If you're up north, stay cool. If you're down here, stay warm and keep your socks on. And... I will, of course, leave you with the credits for the movie to honour the Patreon subscribers in the manner of movie credits. See you later and take care. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast done in the style of film credits. I'd like to thank Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the Technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, our musical director. Jan, our dialect coach. Armin, our key grip. Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler. Elaine, our scientific advisor. Julia, the casting director. Chris, the camera operator. Christopher, the gaffer. Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress. Tansy, our Foley artist. Alyssa, our location scout. Mark, the second unit director. Paul, the special makeup effects director. Tammy, the donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve Sullivan, our script doctor. Dylan, the goat wrangler. Eric, the set security lead. Richard H., the set photographer. Mark D., the extra. David L., the extra. And Richard C., our transport co-captain, plus Andrew, our necessary film critic. We have Kerry H., our accountant, and Kerry L., our other spiritual advisor. Thank you so much to all the patrons for dipping into their pockets and helping out with the podcast. This has been a Paleo Cinema Martian in production. The end.